before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. My guest this week is Juliette de Klerk of JDI Research. Now, Juliette is someone whose work I've followed for quite some considerable time for one very specific reason. Her data analysis and, importantly, her conclusions are very often at odds with my own views on potential paths forward. So it's always been a tremendous sanity check for me to look at how she's reading the financial tea leaves at any given time. A recent report she published offered what I thought was a very out-of-consensus pathway that was a long way from my own base case. So what better catalyst for a long overdue conversation? Now, during our chat, Juliet refers frequently to a chart pack, which you'll be able to download from the website. And I'd strongly recommend you do just that because A, it will bring the conversation to life. And B, frankly, if you don't do it, your, your head will be spinning like a top. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Juliet DeClaire. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been quite a few years since you and I last had a chat. Well, thank you very much for having me, um, especially at uh, such an interesting time. Yes, you live in interesting times, as they say. Well, you published a piece recently that got my ears pricked up and you very kindly sent me a chart pack to go with it, which contained just so many fascinating reads on different parts of the economy. And you know, central to, I think, that chart pack are some what are quite contrary thoughts on the likely outcome in the inflation-deflation debate and the potential soft landing for the economy. So what I'd love for you to do is really pick the place that you want to start with the story, because it's a really interesting one, and I'd love to talk through it with you. I think we should um, probably start in Jackson Hole, uh, because obviously that's the one thing that got everyone uh, talking yeah. this summer. You know, we, we first had that fantasist uh, sort of like um, pivot in July, which I think is the reason in itself for the Okish Jackson Hole. Now, I think the reason really there was a need to be Okish in Jackson Hole is because you cannot... At this point, you cannot really allow financial conditions to ease too much. Unfortunately, equities get priced on the discount rate, which basically discounts economic future, but actually tend to price on current earnings, which um, uh, tend to get downgraded uh, with a lag. So that means two things together. It's very hard for the Fed to actually uh, keep a lead on financial conditions. So as soon as you got a whiff of a, um, you know, dovish thing, um, you know, I think that's that's really what happened in July. And, and that's why the first um, section in, in my report is actually called uh, you have to aim higher to hit the spot. And, and the reason I say that is basically if you manage to to flatten the front end of the curve and to prevent uh, markets from pricing cuts in 2023 and, and, and 2024, all else equal, you end up with tighter financial conditions, which actually allow you to smooth the path to soft lending and potentially um, actually lower the terminal rate because you don't need to, to get as high to actually weaken 
the economy. Mm-hmm. But my point here is that it doesn't change the fact that uh, disinflation is already underway. And, you know, the same way uh, we should never have read too much in, into any forward guidance uh, by the Fed or, in fact, by any central banks in the world for the past 18 months. Uh, I wouldn't really take Jackson Hole as a kind of like it's written in stone that the Fed will be okay and and basically like keep raising uh, real yields. I fully expect the Fed to react eventually to a softer inflation uh, outlook. So it's it's such a fascinating situation that the Fed is now in the position where having had these tailwinds of the markets believing what they were saying through their forward guidance, because obviously what they were saying meant higher markets, they now are desperate to force the market to continue to believe them in a situation where where that would mean lower markets and they're struggling. I mean, no no great surprise there. This really has become a kind of battle of wills. And do you think the Fed has the ability and the credibility to achieve the outcome you talk about? Do you think that they can convince markets that they're serious for long enough to re-rate markets slightly lower and then begin to pivot in a way that doesn't just set things off to the races again? You're talking about inflation, obviously, here, right? Yes. Not, not just, um, so I think, you know, it's interesting to look at um, the um, chart 12 uh, in my chart pack, which is actually on, on page five. Yep. I've used the Michigan here, which is um, one year ahead and, and, and five to 10 year. My actual belief is that what really matters today is basically one year inflation expectations. And the reason for that is that I'm a firm believer that inflation is a, is, is an extremely economic stimulant, meaning the reason you're going to be borrowing and the reason why uh, credit flows have been so strong in the US. And, and even after uh, I was actually expecting like uh, credit flows to soften this summer, but they haven't at all. We're still basically on trend. And, and the reason is that inflation inflation expectations are still too high. Uh, in other words, you know, we, you know, you and, and me have used, I've been used to the low inflation world where, you know, you'd get like your 2% um, inflation per year if, mm-hmm. if, if you were lucky. And there wasn't really a level of yield that you'd be like really excited about um, uh, borrowing at. Uh, it's completely different when you actually have inflation running at 10%. You can basically easily borrow, um, you know, at five, even 6%, which is the current um, average uh, mortgage rate. So of course this will revert as in short-term inflation starts coming down again, but at the moment it's still a very strong stimulant. So in my opinion, that's the one thing that's the issue for the Fed today, because obviously um, inflation expectations are driving uh, wage demand, are driving uh, credit flows, and and they're still quite high. But if you're looking at um, where five to 10 years, um, we've actually already come back down uh, dramatically. If you're looking at where we were in in the 70s, we were like at 10%. If you're looking in the 80s, we were at 4.5%. And there's actually another chart that I have on that, which is chart 17 on page six. That's actually data that, that were released just yesterday. It's like the New Year Fed data. And you can see that one year ahead inflation expectations has come down another 0.5% 0.5% in August. So we had only July data before yesterday. Uh, five-year head infect- expectations is still coming down as well, but not that interesting because it, it doesn't have much history. But if you're actually looking at three-year head inflation expectations, we're actually now lower than where we were pre-COVID. So that's actually quite a big deal 
And I think really the, the, the last piece of the puzzle uh, that's missing for the Fed is like a, a broadening in the disinflationary outlook. And you can see on the chart 15, on page six again, that, you know, there, there is clearly disinflation underway, but it's not yet broad based. And, you know, as you, you would expect, it's already, it's it's been ma mainly headline driven, mm -hmm. uh, obviously driven by like much lower uh, gas oil prices and, and, and also like food prices. It's yet to really broaden to, to the services uh, area, which is obviously the, the main issue for the Fed right now is like the first round inflation is, is linked to commodities and, and goods prices. And that in some way, and, and we can talk about it in, in the future question, is kind of um, sorted out. And we are left with basically second run inflation pressures, uh, which are still feeding through the, the, the pipeline. Well, that, that brings us to wages. And again, you had another great chart on that. I think it's number 13 or 14, is it? No, 13. Um, yeah. You know, showing that workers' bargaining power may have peaked. It's interesting, you know, particularly in Europe, we're seeing an awful lot of industrial action with workers trying to get higher wages. And obviously the, the wage component of this is very much priced off current inflation and not necessarily future expectations. I mean, there aren't any workers that sit there and say, well, inflation is going to moderate, my cost of living is going to go down, so I won't ask for a higher wage. Exactly. How, how does that particular dynamic play out? Because as you say, that's a very tricky one for a central bank to try and manage. I mean, that's really the issue. As you say, basically, inflation expectations are entirely driven by realized infl inflation. And s most often in the US, actually, you can see that the highest correlation is actually with gas oil. Obviously, yeah. the, the, you know, the people in the street are not listening to the Fed. They're just looking at what's happening in, in reality. And the best way to, to gauge reality is, is actually, you know, oil prices, which luckily have, have come down. Uh, quite dramatically over the last um, 90 days. Uh, so th that's that will start to fit through lower wage demand. In my opinion, there's two things that are driving wages. There's obviously bargaining power, you know, which which I think will remain. And, and I think in labor markets will remain tight. Uh, the reason we will remain tight is is, is partly like demographics and, and, and the fact that the mm. The pool of of labor is obviously shrinking as as baby boomers continue to retire. At the same time, you're going to get baby boomers basically starting to desave, uh, which means overall that you you have um, um, a transfer of capital from the capital to to, to labor, and and that, in my opinion, keeps uh, global labor markets tight. Uh, you know, if you add to that the fact that emerging markets are not so much. Uh, uh, you know, like adding to the cheapness of the global uh, labor pool uh, that you know keeps us in a in 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 a tight labor market. But but there's a second element which also drives wages, and and it's basically inflation expectations, as we just said, is actually driven by uh, realized uh, inflation, and that's on chart 14, uh, where you can actually see for yourself. I've added on on chart 14 gas oil prices, and, and you can see how well it is correlated. So in other words, you can actually have like a, a, a peak in bargaining power just on the basis of a lower churn in the labor market. As you know, in the US, there's been like unprecedented churn in the, in the labor market and quitters are actually getting you know about like double wage increases than stayers. So a lot of 
the wage is actually driven by the unprecedented churn in the labor market. Uh, and that's actually already starting to cool. Obviously, we're not in the sort of like uh, huge labor mobility anymore that we've seen during the crisis. And the second thing is you can see already in terms of like um, workers' uh, mind, there's also a peak in their perceived bargaining power, which I think is better expressed by like the job plentiful versus hard to get rather than, you know, jobs advertised, which a lot of market participants have been focused on the jolt, you know, Mm -hmm. and and job advertisement. But I I actually doubt it will be as strong a a lead indicator uh, as anything we've seen in the past, especially in the era of, um, of, you know, social media. and, And, you know, there's no reason why you wouldn't keep a job advertised, even if you're not actually looking to fill it anymore. So I'm, I'm much more inclined to look at what workers are actually saying and, and workers are actually, you know, telling us that they're quitting less and, um, and that they're saying jobs are as harder to get than in the past six months. Now, are we, are we seeing the same in the US and Europe? Because there seems to be some diversion. Obviously, the energy crisis is much more prevalent in Europe. It's much more front and centre and top of mind of workers. Are we seeing the first signs of divergence in the US and European economies, do you think, with, with regards wages and employment? I think we are much later in the cycle in Europe until recently. I mean, f- firstly, the, the burst of inflation in Europe has been much more driven by the invasion of yeah. Ukraine by Russia rather than, you know, the, the COVID crisis itself. If you look at um, what's happening in France, for example, which is really interesting because they had capped electricity prices at like 4% increase, at least for the consumer, which means what you really got was like a, a supply shock and nothing else. And you're only just starting to see an increase in services prices, so which is like the, the closer link to wages. So I think that there is that massive gap uh, in between where we are in the cycle in the US and where we are in the cycle in Europe. And also, obviously, the fact that in Europe, initially, um, the, the burst of inflation was all supply-based, which I don't think is, is going to be true anymore because obviously what's happening in, in Europe is the consumer is shielded. Firms are basically the ones, um, you know, seeing like massive uh, PPI increases. And the fact that you're shielding the consumer means you're still like moving to a, an equilibrium where demand is actually going to be stronger and, and allow firms to pass the price increases that you would normally not see if there was much higher demand destruction on the back of like um, uh, much higher uh, non-regulated energy prices. But I mean, that gap in Europe, particularly between the PPI and the CPI is is enormous. I mean, that's the kind of yeah. gap that, let's face it, with the best will in the world, governments can't cover a, almost 25% yeah. uh, differential in most cases. So how does that play out in Europe, do you think? In Europe, it will obviously play out on the basis of the geopolitical crisis and potentially its resolution. My view on that is, um, you know, quite out of consensus. I actually think that we've potentially seen the worst in terms of what's going to get priced uh, in Europe. Um, I look at geopolitics the the same way I would be looking at inflation, e.g., you know, I'm not not trying to forecast what will happen, but how markets will react to it. And I think what's really interesting in Europe is a few things. Firstly, I think it was quite smart to let the crisis blow 
uh, this summer. So I think basically like Putin's been pushed to completely cut the gas this summer, uh, basically reacting to to the threat of price cap in oil. Uh, I think it's it was quite smart in in two ways. Firstly, it basically made price blow up, which is kind of a good way to focus the minds in terms of what we need to achieve uh, in terms of um, demand destruction to actually go through uh, winter. And I think, you know, that's been a main success, not only in the population, but obviously in what was announced last week by uh, von der Leyen, which I think is exactly focused on the right thing, which is basically, um, you know, curbing peak demand in electricity. Uh, and curbing peak demands also means like curbing peak gas demand, uh, which is absolutely crucial into the winter. So I think we need that 15 to 20 percent demand destruction. And, and I think it will happen, uh, which obviously uh, gives gives Putin a lot less leverage because, you know, once you've already cut the gas to zero, there's not a lot more that you can do in terms of being the marginal you know, energy uh, mover that he's been in, in, in the past six months. What's also interesting is that there is a plan after that, uh, which I think is credible, a plan for the winter 2023. Firstly, you know, obviously Europe has become the largest uh, importer of, of LNG from, from the US. Uh, Germany is basically coming uh, with, with two floating LNG, you know, regasification capability. The second thing is obviously that France is moving fast towards reinstating its um, nuclear capacity. Uh, you also have like, um, you know, pipelines being discussed uh, between uh, Spain and, and France and, and also Netherlands is actually increasing its production as well. So I think that there was this window of opportunity for Putin to have like a massive leverage and, and for Europe to be completely stuck that's basically the next five months. And if we go through the next five months, Putin's completely lost leverage. On the European side, obviously, if things don't go as planned and, and everything seems a little bit more iffy than what I'm saying right now, I actually think that the fact that we're now talking about like fighting in Donbass, uh, which was basically, you know, where we were already fighting, where Russia was already fighting in 2014, is likely to lead to time where basically European population is no longer be willing to basically experience massive electricity rationing to save Donbass. I mean, what I'm talking about right now is that it's the fact that Ukraine's sovereignty is no longer at risk, and especially given the winds uh, that we've seen in, in the past two days. Now, obviously, there's the massive issue of the fact that Russia's nuclear capability can be used at times of existential, I can't remember what is the exact word, but obviously if Putin loses a lot more than what is being lost uh, right now, uh, on one side in terms of leverage and on the other side in, in terms of actual ground in, in Ukraine, the risk is obviously, you know, the use of, of nuclear capability at the time where Russian's existence is not at risk, but Putin's one clearly is. So that's, that's the big caveat in my reasoning. But otherwise, it really seems to me that geopolitically, I don't know who will be the force to blink, 
uh, Europe or Russia. And, and the way Russia would be blinking is basically by declaring so-called victory <laughs> and and Europe uh, blinking would basically be by um, trying to carve out uh, gas sanctions. But what I'm saying right now is there are reasons for both sides to actually start moving uh, together again. And and given the fact that we were just talking about like a sort of five months uh, issue and, and, and 2023 uh, being a completely different story, um, I'm actually quite bullish, you know, European stocks. And I've actually... Uh, recommended to get out of short euro last week. Uh, there's there's currently um, geopolitical premium on the dollar, which mm-hmm. there's a chart on my in my report, which is chart eighteen. Yeah. So the the way I look at um, at the dollar is it's um, counter cyclical uh, currency, so it tends to do really well uh, when when the global cycle is headed south and and tends to to do better. Uh, when the global cycle recovers. So I, I like to look at um, dollar versus DXY or, or the dollar uh, on its own versus the um, real curve steepness, uh, which which is also uh, moving in tandem with um, with obviously the, uh, the global cycle. And you can see here that uh, the dollar has basically uh, appreciated about like um, 5% more than the global mm-hmm. cycle would actually uh, predict, um, which is telling me that if we see some sort of um, geopolitical de-escalation, I think the dollar is about like 5% too strong. So I'm starting to be worried about like pushing the dollar here. But I think the main reason why it's been so strong is is not so much the global down cycle, but the, the fact, uh, the US exceptionalism with Europe and the massive threat from like um, the electricity crisis and China being in it, its own like property doldrum. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. You know, my my opinion of UK and European policymakers is far lower than yours. But I don't want to get into a, a policy conversation because I don't think it's it's the primary focus of either of us at the moment. Um, we're much more interested in markets. So, so let's stick with the dollar and the euro, particularly because obviously we've seen tremendous weakness in the euro versus the dollar, um, as we have every currency. But the euro, particularly, I think, has caught a lot of people's. Um, gaze when it went to to parity. So what do you see for the euro if the scenario you, you've just outlined plays out? Um, we're talking about a currency a block that used to have like a huge current account surplus and where, you know, terms of trades have simply uh, dramatically worsened in the past six months due to energy exports. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if suddenly you, and, and I think that's the reason for the huge dollar premium or, or euro discount, and I think the risk from here is that we actually price Putin out and that global macro forces can, you know, work again, uh, which means that suddenly the recession we're all expecting in Europe might not be as, you know, we were expecting like two months ago. And I'm still sticking to the view that US uh, recession, if it happens, will be also like a flash recession two quarters and done which obviously means a very different trajectory uh, for global assets. Yeah. Now, as I went through the report, it is filled with soft landing scenarios, all of which, but looking at the data makes sense. But is there anything that troubles you that could upend this potential kind of Goldilocks scenario that you've outlined? Um, Obviously, if the geopolitics don't improve, 
what we're do, doing right now is basically pricing out the effect of the Russia versus Ukraine war. Yeah. My view in February was a lot more constructive and, and I'm sure, you know, many were, were like me, was a lot more constructive on the, on the global cycle, even if you had this like a burst of, in, of inflation from COVID. If that doesn't improve at all and we're seeing like basically electricity prices in this winter, which explode again and, and look like it's not a one-off, then, you know, suddenly that means the dollar is back on its front foot and that will be, you know, killing the U.S. cycle a lot faster than I currently anticipate. Of course, I could be wrong on the labor market. Basically, what the recession is, like, is a doom loop uh, of, you know, basically weaker labor markets, layoffs and weaker demand and, you know, a doom loop that, that you can't really stop anymore. The interesting fact, and, you know, I'm saying it's a fact, but uh, we don't have that many cycles to analyze, even if you look back to like the 1950s. But any recession where you got in um, with a high level of inflation is normally a recession where you've got much less of a dip in earnings. And the reason is that labor markets are a lot stronger when there is high inflation. And the reason is, is simple. It's uh, Yellen's so-called like greasing the wheel, uh, yeah. which is actually the reason why they picked the, the 2% inflation uh, target in, in the early 90s. And the reason is that, you know, workers are never willing to take a nominal pay cut. But when there is inflation, you can actually freeze salaries and they can get huge real pay cuts. And, and obviously that's what happened in the, in the past two years. Where, where pretty much everyone on the planet got a, a real pay cut. And the, the beautiful thing when you can cut your payroll in real terms so easily is that you don't really need to lay off people. And, and especially when you're considering the fact that there might well be a global um, drop of, of workers, why would you be you know, basically laying off uh, workers when you don't actually have to and you, you can basically achieve like the 10% downsizing in, in payroll, but by basically just freezing uh, nominal salaries. So there is a, a very strong uh, reason behind the fact that, you know, it is the backbone of this economy and any economy where there is higher inflation is a lot harder to break than an economy which is in stagflation, which is pretty much what we've seen in the, in the past 12 years uh, post-GFC. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and and so, and so much hinges on this. And I think from, I, I take your point about the real uh, wage cuts there on, on, from from the perspective of companies. But I'm just interested looking at it from Labor's point of view. You know, they've had this period where the cost of living has crept higher in real terms, and and as you quite rightly pointed out earlier on, when when the main inflationary catalyst is energy is something that people can't ignore because they all need to heat their homes. They all need to fill their cars up with petrol. Is there a danger that there's pent up pressure here for wage increases because of exactly what you've laid out? They've, they've been cut in real terms for quite some time now. Is there a danger that the energy component of this forces a kind of rebalance and the labour motivation to get wage increases is almost backdated to say, listen, we've been kind of screwed for a decade here. It's impossible for us to ignore. It's impossible for us to think about it in 
real terms. We want nominal increases now to make up for what we've gone through in the last year, which is kind of the blow off for, for 10 years of, of steadily lower real wages. I mean, I've got only, um, I think you're you're asking the question about Europe and I've got mostly charts. Um, no, no, no. Of- I, 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 just, I think that's, that particular thing is is a global problem. Yeah. It may be, may be sh- sharper in Europe because of the, the energy component in Europe. But also, you know, I, I've, I've felt the same when I've been in the US and talking to yeah. people about that situation. There is this sense that, you know, our real wages have been cut for quite some time now and we just, can't afford that anymore. So we are going to get more vociferous about about getting some kind of redress. So, so if you if you're taking chart three of my chart pack on yep. on page one actually, you can see that. So, so I'm looking there at like a nominal income growth, uh, which is basically earnings plus employment growth. So, like basically total labor input. And and actually, what's what's really interesting in this chart going back to uh, what we were talking about like just two minutes ago, is you can see for yourself that the labor market is staying much stronger, much later, and there's a much stronger lag between business conditions and uh, the total labor input. Um, So if you're looking in the 70s and, and late 70s, the two cycles there, there's like a much longer lag uh, between yeah. uh, labor and, and business conditions. And and that's happening today as well. And and obviously, I think that's the reason why most uh, market uh, players have been surprised by the strengths of the labor market. Nonetheless, uh, I think in the, in, in the next six months, there is a strong case to be made that total labor input will uh, come down quite dramatically and, and, you know, it simply cannot stay there because we're still basically quarter on quarter running at a 7% nominal increase. If you want it to be in tune um, with the 2% inflation target, assuming that productivity is like one point between 1.7 and, and 2%, you would need basically uh, total labor uh, input growth to be around 4%. So mm-hmm. there is like a, a 3% uh, drop that will come um, in the next um, few months, probably into the end of uh, of 2022. Uh, otherwise, you would basically experience like the largest fall in productivity ever. And, and it would just not uh, make any economic sense. So I think workers' bargaining power is melting away. And, and even if, you know, labor markets are going to stay relatively strong, I still think that unless you have a very strong, you know, incentive and, and reason to to demand higher wages, I think your bargaining power is clearly coming down quite quite dramatically. So yes, of course, there will be like you know trying to recuperate uh, the loss in purchasing power that you've lost over the past two years. But there is also an element of, uh, you know, the ship has sailed on on that. And and if you were really that desperate, then you should have moved jobs six right. months ago. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because obviously the labour component tends to miss these cycles. As you say, they're not looking at forward-looking data. But we're yeah. seeing across Europe and in the UK uh, plenty of industrial action, which we haven't really seen in this kind of shape or form for quite some time. And I just wonder if the nature of politics perhaps has changed slightly. Perhaps not the nature, the nature of politics is never going to change. But the the political component of this has changed a little in compared to what it was like in the 70s. And it seems that it's much, much tougher these days, particularly in the age of social media, for politicians and employers 
to be quote unquote tough on striking workers. Do you think that that will change the equation any, or or do you think that still the power is going to be with capital as opposed to labor? I mean, that that's definitely part of my um, sort of like soft landing vision because uh, what I'm thinking about next year. Uh, so if if you look at what happened over COVID, first you had the burst of inflation, and then you had like you know everybody realized what what they lost in purchasing power, and 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 there was a lag of like about twelve months between you know wages going up and inflation actually going up. I think the same will happen into twenty twenty three. You are absolutely right that you know industrial action is very high, and I think you know wages will be lagging inflation. And that means that real wages will actually go up in 2023, which is the basis for the cycle and, and the potential recession, even in Europe, to be, you know, a lot softer than than many expect. So let, let's switch let's switch topics and talk about housing a little bit. You had a couple of charts in there about housing. And obviously this is something that through the COVID pandemic and the stimulus, we've seen some really unbelievable housing data come out. And we've seen house price increases really across the world in in ways that have, even with previous housing bubbles, kind of shocked a lot of people. What's the data telling you about what's likely to happen to housing markets? Uh, So I think what's really interesting in the housing market is the the sort of like discrepancy between the US and the rest of the world, really. I didn't put all my, uh, you know, housing charts and and sort um, in in that report because I published everything about this in, in, in the last report. But what's really striking is that in the US, there is no question that housing demand is is sharply weaker. Uh, It's obviously sharply weaker on, on higher uh, mortgage rates. Yeah. Um, but what I discuss in this report is the sort of like, um, you know, normal, typical AD, uh, aggregate demand, aggregate supply curve, which I put on, uh, I put a chart on that, on chart four, um, just for the ADAS kind of like, um, you know, Ken's uh, sort of like, a, you know, where you're going to be ending up uh, in terms of prices. And I think what's really interesting is we had like basically a textbook response to the shift of like supply uh, to the left and demand shift to the right uh, because of basically inelastic curves. And on, on one side, you basically had like construction uh, PPI, which basically went up like 50% uh-huh. uh, over the COVID crisis. And, you know, it, it wasn't really surprising because if you look at chart uh, five, for example, uh, before the COVID hit, that is like basically, let's say at the, at the end of 2019, we were globally basically at levels of stock of, of, of resources and stocks of finished products that were, you know, at the cycle low pretty much. So, you know, we, you, you got the COVID, you got the massive demand push, on, you know, and, and stimulus uh, at the time where supply became uh, extremely con- constrained and and basically both curves moved towards it it shows like uh, basically bringing prices to to form on on the extremely steep uh, part of the curve and, and basically exploding with with pretty much like no increase in output so it it's really exactly what happened with us housing uh, over the pandemic so, you know, everybody were, were told to stay at home and, and work from home and, and they all rushed to basically upgrade their nest. And, and you basically had a shortage of building materials, a shortage of builders, 
And that meant uh, pretty much that like supply had no chance of, of meeting demand. Um, but what, what's interesting for the past year now, so since beginning of 2021, is that construction has really like picked up. And, and that means inventories of um, housing in, in, in the US is finally picking up. So there is some sort of like uh, normalization uh, of housing supply and, and obviously much weaker housing demand on the back of like much higher uh, mortgage rates. But more importantly, um, at this stage uh, is the fact that um, housing, so supply demand, is still extremely tight. And, and especially if you're looking on chart um, 11, um, in light green is a household formation versus housing inventory. You can see for yourself that supply demand is easing, but mm-hmm. it's actually after 15 years um, yes. of basically inventories trying to catch up with household formation. And, and we are nowhere close to the to, to what has been seen in, in you know late uh, 2008 and and obviously the housing crisis of of the global financial crisis meaning and and that would really explain why um if, even if you if you're looking in the details of um of the last payroll construction payroll is still extremely strong and basically construction still has to catch up with household formation so i do expect lower prices uh in the us lower housing prices i do expect you know a rebalancing of 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 supply demand but i don't expect it will basically be at the expense of uh, a much lower output and again that goes back to um you know rebalancing the adas aggregate demand aggregate supply curve mm-hmm. what i'm saying here is that why can't we get like a basically a price shock with very little increase um, in the output and then the rebalancing of demand and supply and without much of a negative impact on output. And in that case, that would be construction. For me, the, the, the US housing market is really like the textbook answer to like a, a demand supply shock and, and basically rebalancing. And I don't think that construction will be much impacted, which again goes back to the uh, sort of like soft landing uh, view that I have. But the, very interestingly, um, if you're looking at um, Canadian markets, if you're looking at like Australian markets, yeah. it is much more vulnerable. And I had a long dollar card, um, you know, which I recommended like a, a few months back uh, to actually play that divergence of like housing market. I think the housing market can break the Canadian economy, can potentially break the, the Australian economy, but I don't think it will break the US, which obviously, you know, brings potential uh, opportunities. Yeah, no, I I would agree with all that. Um, before we close, there's a couple of the charts towards the end of the report, which um, I, I wanted to talk about, and that's uh, charts 21 and 22, where you're talking about financial repression, because this is something that has been kind of top of mind for a lot of people, given yeah. the constraints that central banks have found themselves in. Talk a little bit about equities, what they're doing, and and how they might be taking a very different view to financial repression than, than a lot of people have expected. So I think that's really like a macro theme um, that I've been pushing since the end of the um, uh, COVID crisis. Uh, I think we we are exiting the COVID crisis in a completely different uh, macro paradigm than you know we've we've entered the crisis. And I think there's been a lot of like a blurry picture this this year, uh, obviously because of the you know added macro disruption. 
of the commodity crisis driven by like the Russian uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine. But I'm seeing uh, many reasons why the real equilibrium, so the R star, uh, is going to be like potentially like much higher than than we were pre-crisis. And, and there are a few reasons for that. The first thing is one we've already touched base about, which is like basically that demographics is turning uh, inflationary. So we have more gray hairs among the population, and that means more dependence. And, and that obviously results in a tight labor market and, and, and also a shift in income distribution between labor and capital. Well, guess what? Labor is much more likely to, to spend so that's actually a source of more dynamic uh, economic uh, activity in, in the future and, and basically higher demand. Something that goes in, in, in tandem with that is obviously the fact that we're going to see lower inequalities, stronger wages, especially at the bottom of the income distribution, uh, where there is obviously a, a greater propensity to spend, is a given. And, and it's also a source of um, economic vitality. In the same sort of like vision, we're going to see inflation, which which many expect, even if it's going to dip. Uh, my view it is cyclically inflation is going to be going down in the next two years. But overall, I think we are structurally going, going to be higher. Uh, and that basically eats away at capital holders real wealth in favor of the working class with, with income tied to inflation. And that means we're distributing wealth across generations which again, you know, basically lowers inequalities and, and increase um, aggregate demand. If you're looking into in terms of like fading uh, financial repression, I think really what it does to businesses is, is really favor, um, um, incentivizes investment rather than than buybacks. And, and I think for the past 12 years, really, that that's what we've seen. We've seen like a tons of buybacks, zero invest, investment, which has been part um, of the issue in the, in the COVID crisis that, you know, there was this drop of, of investment. And I think as CEOs start, uh, optimism starts, starts to recover, we're going to see productivity gains on technological progress um, if it was just to counter a shrinking uh, labor force. But obviously, also, we headed to like green transition, a move to greater energy independence in Europe. Generally, I think investment is likely to be a lot more dynamic than we were pre-crisis. And, and let's not forget about the new harms race, you know, which, which has been uh, triggered by, by, by the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. The last thing, and uh, not actually the, the second last thing, uh, which I already touched base about, is, is the fact that um, higher inflation makes the, the labor market a lot stronger. It's a lot more difficult to break an economy uh, with high inflation because, you know, you, you've got a lot less incentives to lay off. Uh, but finally, on, on the consumer side, I think many um, expect and did expect that there would be basically more demand and, and less saving uh, on the back of like much higher uh, financial repression, e.g. deeply negative real yields. And if you're looking at um, many charts, in fact, what's happened is that deeply negative real yields totally uh, depress demand and actually increase saving. And, and the reason is, is obviously uh, quite obvious. If, if you think you're going to get like no return, no real return on, on your saving, you're actually likely to save more, you know, basically to prepare for, for your retirement. So that, that's the five reasons 
um, in my opinion, why uh, the real equilibrium yield will actually be higher. And I think it was around zero probably pre-COVID. And it m- might be a, a, as high as like 125, 1.25 uh, post-COVID. And if you're looking at what equities are, are pricing right now, uh, it's actually interesting that the equity risk premium, so in blue on, on chart 21, you can see that all the past uh, Fed pivot, um, w- what happened was that you had like a large widening in the equity risk premium as the Fed got to levels of real yields that were actually uh, becoming restrictive. What's happening uh, since we, st- we started to price out uh, Putin is that the equity risk premium, the SPX equity risk premium is going actually tighter in tandem with long-term U.S. real yields. Uh, And what that means is that both asset classes are actually pricing the same thing, which is that we actually potentially headed to, uh, and and I'm not talking about the next, um, you know, six months or, or, or nine months where, you know, I think we all agree that you know, global economy is going to be going to be weaker. I'm talking about the exit of that uh, potential flash recession, where earnings are going to going to look sturdier because of all those facts. And and also one thing I forgot, which is the the you know like we we basically ended twelve years of of deleveraging, private deleveraging, um, which is um you know on the back of like basically private leveraging going to like a, a, the government, which becomes much less of a macro issue. Uh, and means that there is tons of space still for the U.S. consumer to re-leverage. And, and that's really what we happen, that what's happened over, over the past uh, two years and is continuing to happen. So what you're seeing on chart 21 and, and chart 22 is a move away from what I called um, Casa de Papel. So in March 2020, uh, I started to basically call like Casa de Papel, which is basically flooding of liquidity. Um, you know, everywhere in the world. And, and I think what we're seeing right now is like reverse Casa de Papel. But what you're going to find out is that as everybody is like waiting for the next next recession to, to buy the NASDAQ, for example, on the back of lower real yields, what will happen, I think, in the future is that good news will become good news again. And you're going to be able to see equities advance despite higher real yields on the back of more compressed uh, risk premium. And on, on chart 22, um, I'm talking about like sort of like this, a similar thing, but basically looking at the equity risk premium versus inflation. And 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 what's interesting again here is to go back to uh, my argument on, on, on inflation that, you know, an, an inflationary world when inflation is actually um, in controlled uh, is a lot sturdier than an, a disinflationary world. Let me, let me ask you about one component of that, 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 rang a bell as you as you talked briefly about it and that is this switch away from kind of buybacks and into investment um, on the part of companies i'm interested in that because obviously the, the buyback culture is is designed to prop up stock prices and has done a remarkable job of doing that and has has helped elevate valuations to levels that in many cases are not necessarily in tune with the health of the business if the companies move back to to investing rather than buying back equities, you know, one would imagine, 
A, look, it's great news for the businesses. I mean, it, it's about time companies started investing in the businesses rather than just in the share price. But does that not suggest there will be a re-rating of a lot of the stocks that are are high because there's this bid under them from the company? That, that's a great, great question. And it goes back to what I was saying is basically on, on one side, you're derating you know, financial repression and and all those acts that up. The reason there was buybacks um, was really because there was a lack of demand and it made a lot more sense to actually, um, you know, buy your own equity shares and and benefit from like a, a really deeply negative real yields, you know, to basically pump up uh, your share. And what I'm saying is that, of course, that's happening. But on the flip side, you've got a, a world where uh, final demand is potentially much stronger. And I think that more than offsets, especially given we've already priced out a lot of the um, financial, the end of the financial repression is already sort of like priced uh, right now. The flip side is actually stronger demand, uh, more sturdy um, you know, earnings, potentially less you know, mini cycles and 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 basically higher nominal growth. Because one thing that we haven't talked about um, as well is the fact that all those indices they are actually looking at real growth. So you know, some some indices are telling us like real growth in the US is going to go to like say minus one, you know, potentially minus two two percent. But that still could keep us like very comfortably like positive on the nominal side. And obviously, you know, companies' earnings are much more you know, driven by nominal growth than by real growth. So let me ask you one last question before I let you go, um, Juliet. The picture that your charts paint is, uh, I have to say, a very convincing one for a soft landing. How big a danger to that outcome is the human component? Is central bank policies, politics, how, how big a risk to this potential Goldilocks scenario is poor policy? And where, and where, if it is a risk, is that poor policy most likely to affect the outcome, do you think? So, I mean, politics at the moment is clearly um, sort of like pushing to the inflationary and like, you know, pushing demand. I mean, especially in Europe, it's just mind blowing that, yeah. uh, you know, like uh, the, the the PM of, of UK, which basically completely uh, ruled out like doing anything on the electricity side and is now considering a 150 billion package to 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 basically shield the uh, the consumer i think that will keep happening i mean if if you're taking trust as an example i think our only goal is basically to be elected at some point in the next uh, yeah, sure. uh, two years and i think that really means uh, but the same is is true with um, everywhere in europe i mean uh, you know macron is now considering uh, revaluing um you know electricity price and electricity and, and gas prices for, for the consumer a bit. But in the end, like to date, there's basically been like a cap at 4%. So, uh, you know, like the consumer in France doesn't even know that there is an electricity uh, crisis. <laughs> so I think that that's maybe an element to add to my view that uh, real equilibrium yields are probably much higher than we were pre-crisis is the fact also that everywhere you look in the world, fiscal spending still seen as the answer to everything. On, on the political side, I think there's uh, a chance of more demand and the risk is, is actually higher inflation, higher demand. Basically, central banks having to fight this with higher uh, real yields. And, and that's actually my, my current recommendation is to sell tips and, and looking for still higher real yields from here. 
uh, and and part of the reason is that you have this like massive fiscal spending, which some way has to be offset. But that doesn't go against uh, my view of a, of a soft landing, because if you are actually hiking, you know, increasing real yields uh, because of like um, you know higher demand, then you are very much in the scenario I'm, I'm painting, which is that uh, you will get sturdier uh, final demand, and 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 yes, your real yields are going up, but it's also in tandem with a lower risk premium because. You know, there is like this continuous demand there and, and economies are actually stronger uh, than expected and, and not weaker. Julia, it's been a fascinating hour. I have to say you've given me plenty to think about. Uh, you know, your views and your data contrast with a lot of things that I've been thinking about. So this has been hugely valuable to me personally. Thank you. Hopefully the listeners will find it equally valuable. So but before we part ways, let everybody know how they can follow your work, where they can find out more about JDR, because it's, uh, it, it is a fantastic resource. Thank you very much. So I've got a website, uh, which is jdiresearch.com. Uh, 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 I work mostly with professionals um, you know, I've got some high net worth um, clients, but really the bulk of my business is is working with uh, people who make a living uh, of those, you know, underlying trends. And, um, you know, my horizon is is like one month uh, to six months. And, and I give like clear recommendations on the back of um, underlying trends, trying to cut the noise out um, as much as possible. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JulietJDI. And, um, and or, or basically email me at juliet.declerc at jdiresearch.com. Fantastic. Juliet, listen, thanks again uh, from me and thanks again for my audience. I know that uh, people are going to really enjoy listening and for sharing the charts with us, which I think will be an invaluable latest conversation. So thank you once again. You're very welcome. Nice to speak to you. Likewise. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, as promised, a highly non-consensus view backed up with solid data that contrasts, I have to say, significantly with many of my own views and where we go from here. For me personally, conversations like that are absolutely invaluable in trying to handicap outcomes. And I'm immensely grateful to Juliet for taking the time to have that chat with me. You can find out more about JDI at their website, jdiresearch.com. And I strongly recommend you follow Juliet on Twitter at JulietJDI. That's J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E. JDI. That's all from me. I'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.